0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible
2: and universally known.
3: Welcome to Triple Vision. My name is David Best and with me is Hannah Levitt. Hi, Hannah. Hi, David. And with me, we
4: have Peter Field. Hi, David, how are you doing today?
3: Good, thank you. I'm glad that you were able to join me on this podcast Uh, It's going to be an interesting podcast, different from what we've had for the last few. The first three podcasts we had, we actually covered the history of blindness in Canada. We talked about the blinded war vets, and then we talked about the CNIB Foundation, and then we talked about colonialism. And now, in this podcast, we're reaching out to members of the community to give us their perception of their narrative of blindness in Canada. So before we uh, get into the the dialogue, maybe I'll just get the people to introduce themselves.
5: My name is Albert Ruel and I am a totally blind Canadian, uh, just about 66 years of age. I have been a forest worker in my sighted days uh, and started my vision loss journey at about age 21 it took about 12 or 13 years for my vision to fail altogether, and I live on the West Coast uh, on Vancouver Island. Hey, my name is Doug Lawler. I'm
0: currently the president of the Canadian Federation of Blinds. Blind. I was born in 1971, and I went blind uh, a week, just about a week after that. I was told to due do, do to my retina's being scarred. Now, they call it something else now, but back then they called it retina fibroplasia.
6: Hi, I'm Marcia. I'm the National President of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Uh, I've also been blind since birth. I have my first guide dog, and uh, he's sleeping somewhere, and hopefully we'll stay there. Uh, And
2: I'm really looking forward to talking about our history. Hi, I'm Judy Robinette. I'm the Executive Director of Life Worth Living, We are a charity that was founded to promote inclusion among people with disabilities. Uh, We have training courses, we have a resource library, and we do have podcasts. Um, Our hope is that uh, people can learn from stories that people have told from the lived experience.
7: Hi, my name is Doris Coop. I'm the executive director of uh, Vision Impaired Resource Network or Vern. Our focus is people who are vision impaired, uh, their family and friends. We work with uh, the four core building blocks are active living, peer support, training, and public education.
8: Hello there, my name is Vic Pereira. I'm on the board of directors for the Vision Impaired, resource network Vern, and i chair the board
3: so we're going to get your perspective on the narrative of blindness in canada so peter why don't you start us off with the first question
4: Sure, David. Thanks very much. So I'm just going to give it a little bit more context as well. The Pandora project, um, uh, which helps drive the Triple Vision podcast, has an advisory committee. We've heard from members of the community who are engaged in the Triple Vision project that they would like an opportunity to tell the narrative that we're telling. So we thought, great idea to have people on. And talk about the narrative of blindness in Canada. As we get together and we talk about this, it seems like there is a problem with the way the narrative of blindness in Canada has been told so far. So, my first question to everybody on the, in the group is: What's wrong with the current narrative?
5: It's not being told by us, Peter. I think you know when I when I look at the narrative that is being told, I look at the the mainstream media. Right? and I guess maybe all media in Canada. And the, the sad part is we all look at the news as a news and information source, and it isn't. It's a drama. It, it's a dramatic works and belongs in the arts. And so a lot of people go there for their information, and unfortunately, if it bleeds, it leads. And when it comes to blindness, we don't bleed so much. But my goodness, we, we, the narrative is, is pity-filled. Right? And it, uh, so it doesn't tell the story of success and thriving. It tells the story of woe is me.
0: I'd like to echo Albert's sentiments. I, during my life, there was, you know, one prominent organization of course, in, in Canada who was basically portraying the narrative of blindness for me since I was a child. I'm talking about the CNIV. We wanted to find out anything about blindness when I was growing up. That's where you went. That's where people thought you went. That's where you had to go. Because that was the only outlet, I guess, the only, yes, the only outlet, the only provider of blindness services.
8: Working with Vern, one of the things that we noticed with the narrative is As well as the stating the obvious that it's, it's being handled by, by service uh, agencies or researchers or any, anything involved with academia. It's taking a, a a minority that many of us are part of and it continue to subdivides us into a minimum of three categories like uh, blind, vision impaired i think partially sighted is the new term and deaf blind and, and and i think that's doing more of a disservice to our community than helping by by creating these three this divide within our group
2: i believe in stories i believe in telling the lived experience What I think is wrong is that the stories are not being told, the stories of everyday people uh, that can inspire and help someone grow. Uh, I think those stories are important to be told. Everyone has something to say and to share. That will influence society, would, would help someone. I know that for me, a story that helped me before my accident was the story of Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller. And even though they're famous now, they weren't famous at the time. Anne Sullivan was legally blind. She was an orphan. Her father abandoned her. Her mother died at eight. And she was able to unlock uh, the loneliness and isolation in Helen Keller and that story helped me when I was involved in a car accident that left me at that time legally blind and physically impaired at the same time.
7: Personally, I'll speak from, from the experiences that I have and, and the reason that we are working, uh, with Vern and the, why we do things the way we do. We're a little bit, uh, unique. But just the the things that happen with, within the community itself is sometimes somewhat disturbing to me and and others is that the welcoming between the community and uh, you know the organizations that uh, sort of direct or lead our 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 community we're not very big uh, for sure when we talk these wonderful stories and the things that are out there, I would like to see us walk the walk as well. So, because it's really important because we, we are so good at, so many people are so elegant in, in their speak. That's definitely not me. I'm, I'm very straight to the point, but at the same time, it is important to give everybody equal opportunities. And as a person with uh, low vision, I have never really felt uh, w- welcome in the community itself because, you know, I either got too much vision, not enough vision, or, uh, you know, so it's been a real challenge for us. And, and that part of the community has been struggling for a long, long time. And yet it is really a large part of the community, yet we still call everyone blind. Um, so that's one of my, my really uh, difficult challenges Uh, the partially sighted. We've been called low vision, uh, sight impaired. Uh, So it's just been something that struggling with. uh, And I'm not sure how we should approach this. I guess that's my biggest concern. If I was to ever leave a a mark on that, I would hope that we would could work together a little bit more united.
3: So I think everybody seems to agree that The problem with the current narrative today is that it's not being told by the participants. It's not being told by by us. So I guess the the follow-up question would be, who's controlling the narrative
4: then?
6: CNIB, the media, the government.
4: So how is that happening, Marcy? I can imagine our listeners listening to this and thinking, oh, man, is that just conspiracy theory?
6: Well, it manifests itself in uh, fundraising, which focuses on little puppies, and oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. don't you want to give some money so that that little puppy can grow up and be a guide dog? It manifests itself on, you know, oh, we need library funding so that we can, you know, make sure that people who can't see don't lose their funding and don't lose their book.
3: So you're saying that currently the narrative is being told through the emotional aspect rather than the practical aspect of, of our lives. Well, sure.
6: Well, sure because yeah. that's, what? that's the story, right? That's right. the drama.
5: Yeah.
3: So Albert, what is your take on that?
5: I, I agree completely. I think that whole fundraising narrative, uh, you know, the, the pocketbooks get opened if, if we can make people feel sorry enough for us. And so there, again, you know, it's the same thing as the media. It, it's uh, it's not an information source, you've got to look behind it. What's the reason for this communication? And if the reason is fundraising, it's not going to be very flattering for us and our lives, our, our real lived experience. And so certainly people are afraid of vision loss, and and as a result, they don't think they'd be able to put their pants on. If, if they lost their sight. So if they can't imagine how they could survive, they certainly can't figure out how I might be able to, to thrive despite vision loss.
1: And uh, Vic, who would you say is controlling this narrative that we're talking about today?
8: In from what I've, I've seen, this is anecdotal on my part. It is the, the major national players like, uh, like the or agencies that are there to provide services nationally. And I'm also seeing a few of the consumer groups adopting their language instead of developing their own. These would be, you know, a couple of the larger ones in, in the country.
1: Can you give us an example of that language you're talking about?
8: It goes back to what I was saying about dividing our, our community into uh, blind, sight-impaired, and deaf-blind, like Doris was mentioning, the, those terms have changed continuously. And whenever a national you know, service provider that is for the blind, not of the blind, changes it because of s- some reason, maybe it could be some international rehabilitation overseeing body, then the, a lot of the larger consumer groups jump on board and change it. So they're, they're buying into their narrative. And, uh, and like I see that continuously happening.
2: How about you, Judy? One of my concerns is that um, there are so many people who consult with persons with uh, visual impairment, blindness, whatever we want to call it, but they have not lived that life. And they listen for an hour or two or maybe a day or so. And then they come away with a story. And a story they don't fully understand, a story that has many gaps. And I think it uh, takes away from the story of a person who has lived that life because that person has a unique experience that can't be explained in a day or two. They need to tell their own story. Okay, so if if, there, if the media
3: and, and, and charity organizations are controlling the narrative, why are we not there? What's missing from this narrative?
0: I think us as a community have been letting this go on for far too long, where we let the outside sources, the, the media, the, the, the fundraising organizations, tell the narrative when we really should be stepping up and saying, our narrative and telling our story. And that's that's not being done.
4: So how do we change the story? Doug, you're sort of getting at that by saying, you know, we need to tell the
0: story, but so what story do we want to tell to change that? That's a challenge. I think it's
5: starting to shift now. We've got far better access to communications than we ever had. I think we have some, some interesting opportunities uh, on the horizon. And, and I think COVID has showed us a bit of this, you know, as if we weren't left far enough behind to begin with COVID and and all the lockdowns have created even more access and inclusion issues. Uh, And so I I think, you know, when you look at things like uh, Ted talks, I think we need a a blind Ted talk. I heard a story a little while ago where the news media was trying to find some blind folk in the the Vancouver area. Um, who could tell the story about the COVID lockdowns and and its impact on people living with vision loss. And so one individual was chatted with, and he's somebody who's very independent, working, uh, you know, entrepreneur, owned his own businesses. Just he would have been the perfect person to tell the story because he didn't find that COVID was locking him down as much as some others were expressing. He was still moving around, getting to places he wanted to go and doing the things he wanted to do. The only thing he couldn't do is cross the U.S. border to go visit friends in Washington State. The media talked with him for a short while, but they had this other person who uh, was was so locked into his apartment, he didn't he was too afraid to even take his garbage out to the curb. Guess which one the media went with, right? They went with the guy who wouldn't even take his garbage out to the curb for, for fear of, of con, uh, contracting COVID. So even when we try and tell our story, we can't count on others to hear it or to broadcast it. So we will have to, you know, really take a hold of and start to create things like our own blind TED Talks that we can tell our stories of success and and happiness and joy.
6: I wonder if the media is afraid whenever we show our independence. Because if we show our independence publicly, if we make sure that people know that blind people are and can be independent, then that wipes out the whole charity model and the whole fundraising thing because you can't get people to pity us anymore if people see that there's nothing to pity.
5: Well, I think too, Marcy, when you look at what generates clicks in social media, it's usually tragedy, sorrow, devastation, disaster. That's what generates clicks. And so sadly, the news media is stuck in that in, in that little rat cage, right? They're just spinning around in that same little wheel. And so joy and happiness, if it, it takes up 5% of their broadcast, that's all that's going to get. But disaster and devastation is always, going to, is always going to lead. So I don't think we can count on those guys. They're not going to do it for us. That's not what they're in business for.
4: Well, this is interesting, everybody. Um, so, David, what we're hearing and what we're coming back to with Triple Vision and the Pandora Project is about telling our history, right? So, so far we've been hearing that the history as it's been told is not a history that's included us and hasn't told our story. It's sort of told someone else's story about us. So if we're looking at the past, present, and future, that's what we've inherited from the past. Those are our echoes. We're hearing that in the present, we're still struggling with that in terms of how do we change the narrative? And then, you know, our our guests are giving us some ideas about what a future narrative could look like. What should the future narrative look like?
5: I think, you know, some of the stories that that I want to hear more about, those transition places in our lives, where are those junction points in our lives that made the difference, that put us on this path? As opposed to that path, and you know, I'm thinking of things like that—that that run on Long Beach that I did way back in the early days when I was—I was still had some vision. I was slowly losing it, and and yet vision loss had contracted the walls had had dropped the ceiling down on me. I was hardly moving. I wasn't. Everything was slow and deliberate. I, I was really feeling hemmed in by vision loss and and by the community and and the things I thought I wasn't able to do anymore. And somebody encouraged me to take a jog on Long Beach. And I said, oh, my God, no, I can't run it. My God, I'm going to run into something. I'm going to trip over something. I'll hurt myself. And the guy said, Albert, for three and a quarter miles, there's nothing here but a beach, flat beach. And so I decided to run that day. And honest to goodness, the feeling in my body, the the sensation in my body was one of freedom. Like somebody pulled back the wall, somebody lifted that ceiling and set me free. And, and I've been a junkie for that sensation ever since. So those kinds of stories need to be told, that look for the junction points in your lives. Where, where can you make a different decision and set yourself on a different path? And We need to guide and support and encourage people to, to not let blindness be the limitation it seems to be. When I was
0: 12 years old, I bought a... This was back in 1983. So I bought an ATV, so it's a small ATV, and I taught myself how to ride it in areas that I knew. And people were totally amazed that I could do this. But what it did for me at that time was raised my awareness of independence. It told me that, yes, I could do this, even though I couldn't do it very well, but I could definitely do it. But it raised my level of independence.
6: This has been really interesting, just looking back at my life and looking for those aha moments, for those freedom moments, uh, riding on a motorcycle, on the back of a motorcycle and going down a set of stairs on one. (laughs) And that was freeing uh, Mm -hmm. at 16. It was stupid, but it was (laughs) was freeing. So I think we need to encourage those little aha moments.
5: (laughs) If I may add to that, just, you know, one of the things that we often, I I don't know if if it works like this in your lives, but certainly in my life, you know, if I'm out in the workshop sort of hanging around with my brothers or friends and we're we're doing stuff, the the number of times that they can't stand to watch me do it the way I do it, right? So they'll grab the screwdriver out of my hand and say, here, let me do that for you. I can do it much more quickly. Yeah, it might take me four hours to do what I used to do in a half an hour in the wood shop. But I still want, I still want the pride of, of being able to do it. And I have to fight for that every inch of the way. And I think we need to encourage our community to continue that fight. Don't, don't stand back passively and allow people to do it for you if that's something you want to do. When I want to do it, I'll put my hands up and say, look, when you leave the room, I'll get this thing done. But if you can't stand to watch me do this, then the best thing you can do is remove yourself. I will fight to to retain my independence and do all that I can do myself. And I am not so proud that I won't ask for help when I know I need help, but it's not going to be when you think I need help. Right.
1: So as individual organizations, duty, a life worth living and also Vern, um, how do you see trying to break through that narrative ceiling that is controlled right now? Like, can you think of an initiative that, you know, that's sort of been on your in, your, in the back of your mind that you think might address, like, might start to address this narrative business?
7: Yeah, I, I think we've been discussing it a fair amount amongst ourselves here at Burn. We've been discussing the fact that it is time to ch- do a culture change because nobody owns us as as individuals, but the whole community is, is we feel that uh, we, we are owned. Uh, by, you know, the larger organizations, and and they've made us feel that, so we belong too. But part of being something is everybody being, working together, that's the part that's missing. So if we could change, work on changing that culture, that we're not so afraid to speak up and to say, hey, wait a minute, I, I that's not who I am, uh, or just not being worried all the time that we're going to annoy you know the uh, mother the mother organization for lack of a better term, or the government or somebody, that we can be our own individuals. We've been so quiet for so long uh, because we're afraid to speak.
8: We're in Vern we're also trying to change our own behaviors and our own culture instead of always pointing out what's Wrong with the service providers or what, what's, what we don't like about their messages. We're trying just focus on our own message instead of giving them free rental space in, in our time into discussion and in, in, in all our discussions. We're just going to focus on what we can do and how we can work with, with families and governments and, and members of the community M- much better without spending time talking about the, the narrative that academia and those uh, service providers are continuously putting out there and we're always reminding people about them by talking about it and that that's one of the changes that Vern, we've challenged ourselves to work on
2: for a life worth living we have a resource library and every story is based on lived experience what they have to say about their life what they're doing whether it's good or bad, um, they have shared from the depth of their soul of their life, and they enjoy it, and what makes them happy. The second thing that we've done is we are now uh, doing what we call Better Together with the Life With Living podcast, and our uh, focus on that time is looking at the helpers, the people who helped someone achieve their dreams. And that plays on both sides, the person with the disability, the person who doesn't have and has come around to help their loved one or their friend. So that's how we are telling this story. And the story started with me. So uh, I appreciate the people who came into my life to make my life easier and to help me succeed.
3: As you heard, it's very interesting to hear the comments from blind Canadians themselves as opposed to many of the professionals that we often hear from. I think one of the things that I've I've noticed is that over the past 100 years, things have changed very rapidly, and I think with the um, global trends of innovation and the global trends of social evolution, we see quite often the two coming and um, hitting up against each other because quite often what users want is not necessarily what the professionals think they should have. So I, I think it's very interesting that we've got this, this um, podcast with members talking about their narrative backed with our previous podcast in the actual history of blindness in Canada.
4: Indeed, it was um, great to hear from people and what they think the future narrative should be. And thinking about this, if I was to answer the question, what would I like to see in a future narrative? I think I'd like to see more discussion about inclusive and universal design, and I'm sure we're going to get into that in future future podcasts, but the idea of of how do you design the world to be inclusive of everyone, That, that diversity focus, which we see so much now, I think historically, that's where we see the progression is leading to this point in time where policies, programs, services are designed to include the needs of everyone. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to be talking about that in future podcasts.
1: You know, listening to everybody talk about their approaches to delivering services to their clients is, is has been really interesting and how everybody's going about it in different ways through story, through actual hands-on help. That's all been good. But I think I differ a little bit with you, David. I don't think things have changed a whole lot in the last hundred years for people in Canada who are blind. I think we have a lot more technology that's come about in the in the greater world and we do have more access to it which has changed our lives a lot. I think our biggest barrier is attitude about our abilities and I I, I think I think things have changed but I they, clearly they haven't changed enough. I always just go right back to our unemployment rate in Canada and I mean if you have a job, you can have a, a much better quality of life, and that certainly hasn't happened. The other thing I, uh, I I read an essay years ago, and I heard a quote in it that I really that really stuck with me. And it's when you've been put in your place often enough, you become the place. And I've always felt that was very relevant to my life in that I acquired a blindness label, I became a part of this institutional place. And, and every part of it is about charity. And I don't think that part has changed a whole lot. It being a, a, a recipient of charity gives you a kind of mindset about how you go about in the world. Learning to let go of some of, of the old charitable ways of delivering services is, is a first step. And that's going to lead us nicely into our next episode, and which is about the the history of the delivery of library services for the blind in Canada. We hope you'll stay with us for that podcast.
3: Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc, AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, I would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.